Good day, and welcome to the Carvana third quarter 2021 earnings conference call. All participants will be in a listen-only mode. Should you need assistance, please signal a conference specialist by pressing star then zero. After today's presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To ask a question, you may press star then one on a touchtone phone. To withdraw your question, please press star then two. Please note this event is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to Mike Levin, Vice President of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thank you, Matt. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for joining us on Carvana's third quarter 2021 earnings conference call. Please note that this call will be simultaneously webcast on the Investor Relations section of the company's corporate website at investors.carvana.com. The third quarter shareholder letter is also posted on the IR website. Joining me on the call today are Ernie Garcia, Chief Executive Officer, and Mark Jenkins, Chief Financial Officer. Before we start, I would like to remind you that the following discussion contains forward-looking statements within the meaning of the federal securities laws, including, but not limited to, Carvana's market opportunities and future financial results that involve risks and uncertainties that may cause actual results to differ materially from those discussed here. The detailed discussion of the material factors that cause actual results to differ from forward-looking statements can be found in the risk factor section of Carvana's most recent Form 10-K and Form 10-Q. The forward-looking statements and risks in this conference call are based on current expectations as of today, and Carvana assumes no obligation to update or revise them, whether as a result of new developments or otherwise. Unless otherwise noted on today's call, all comparisons are on a year-over-year -year basis. Our commentary today will include non-GAAP financial measures. Reconciliations between GAAP and non-GAAP metrics for our reported results can be found in our shareholder letter issued today, a copy of which can be found on our investor relations website. And now, with that said, I'd like to turn the call over to Ernie Garcia. Ernie? Thanks, Mike. Thanks, everyone, for joining the call. The third quarter was another great quarter for Carvana as we continued our march toward becoming the largest and most profitable automotive retailer. We sold over 110,000 cars to customers, recorded nearly $3.5 billion of revenue, grew total gross profit by 100%, and had our second consecutive quarter of positive EBITDA. Our team delivered these strong numbers despite entering the quarter with significant operational constraints, facing the Delta COVID wave that peaked late in the quarter, and despite making the choice to meter both retail and purchasing volume, which we implemented mid-quarter to ease pressure on the system while we operationally catch up to the demand we're seeing. Since the onset of the pandemic, we found ourselves constrained in various parts of our operational chain. While those constraints have held us back relative to where we might have otherwise been, our team has done an exceptional job and has made tremendous progress throughout. In fact, in the third quarter, we bought and sold over three times as many cars as we did in the third quarter of 2019 prior to the pandemic, and roughly eight times as many as we did in the third quarter of 2018. This has all been possible because we have continued to focus on the long term. We continue to invest in the people, technology, and infrastructure that are necessary to buy and sell millions of cars per year while delivering the exceptional customer experiences we've become known for. Given our opportunity, we believe this is clearly the right choice. To everyone across Carvana that's worked so hard to make our continual progress possible, thank you. We've also recently entered into two exciting partnerships with Root and with Hertz that we discussed in more detail in our shareholder letter. While the potential of these opportunities is significant, they're both at their very early stages, so we plan to share additional details on our product, financial, and scale ambitions with respect to these partnerships over time and will not be providing meaningful additional color at this time. These partnerships are each very exciting. Each has excellent underlying fundamentals and therefore excellent potential, but they're also exciting because of what they represent. 
As we continue building the Carvana platform to deliver exceptional customer experiences and to handle the constantly increasing scale, our horizontal and vertical opportunities continue to increase. As has been the case since our inception, to maximize our opportunity, we must thoughtfully assess and continually increase the capacity of the business to effectively manage our growth and to simultaneously explore these opportunities. And then we must appropriately balance our ambition for both scale and scope with the focus necessary to make constant forward progress. So far, we'd like to think our team has done a good job at building more capacity in the business to tackle these opportunities and at managing these trade-offs given the capacity we have. To build Carvana into what it can be, we'll need to continue to spend energy getting this right in the future, and we plan to. Looking forward, we remain extremely excited. We've reached the scale of over 100,000 cars and 3.5 billion of revenue per quarter, yet we're still only approximately 1% of the overall market. Our focus today is the exact same as it was at the very beginning. It remains on our customers, on the experiences we give them, on maximizing the value we provide to them, on leveraging technology to minimize our costs, on building for scale, and on doing all of that with a long-term perspective so we can maximize our opportunity. The march continues. Mark? Thanks a lot, Ernie, and thank you all for joining us today. Q3 was another strong quarter for Carvana. Retail units sold totaled 111,949, an increase of 74%. Total revenue was $3.48 billion, an increase of 125%. Total gross profit per unit was $46.72, an increase of $616, and the second highest quarter in our history. Retail GPU was $17.69, a decrease of $88. The change in retail GPU was primarily driven by higher reconditioning costs, in part resulting from the impact of the Delta variant on production throughput and higher wholesale acquisition prices, partially offset by higher customer source ratio. Wholesale GPU was 420, an increase of $154. This was driven by gross profit per wholesale unit of $936 and record wholesale unit volume, which grew 227% year over year due to buying more cars from customers. Other GPU was 2483, an increase of $550. The increase in other GPU is primarily driven by strong finance execution and a positive impact of higher industry-wide vehicle prices on average loan size. EBITDA margin was positive 0.2% in Q3. This marked our second consecutive quarter of both positive quarterly and trailing 12-month EBITDA, despite significant investments for growth in 2022 and beyond. We ended the quarter with approximately $2.3 billion in total liquidity resources, giving us significant flexibility to execute our plan. We are executing well and remain focused on building our network and increasing our production capacity to meet demand. We grew immediately available inventory to an average of 16.4 thousand units in Q3, an increase from 12.8 thousand units in Q2, despite the impact of the Delta variant on production volume. We remain on track to launch eight new IRCs by the end of 2022 and continue to focus on growing our IRC teams in preparation for future growth. The explosive growth in buying cars from customers we experienced in the past two quarters also placed significant constraints throughout our system in Q3. To ease the pressure on our system, we began metering both retail units and cars bought from customers mid-quarter to allow our operational capacity to catch up to demand. Most notably, to manage retail sales volume, we reduced the number of vehicles shown to customers in search results, which limited the benefits of higher immediately available inventory on retail units sold. 
We expect to increase our operational capacity in Q4 with an eye toward 2022. Looking forward, we expect to complete a record year on retail units, revenue, total GPU, and EBITDA margin in 2021. In Q4, we expect retail unit growth to continue to be governed primarily by our operational capacity. We expect revenue growth to be more closely aligned with retail unit growth in Q4 than it was in Q3. We expect total GPU in the low to mid 4,000s for the full year, marking our eighth consecutive year of substantial gains. We expect a seasonal pattern in total GPU in Q4, with Q4 lower than Q3. Finally, we plan to continue to invest in the business, both to catch up with current demand and to prepare for growth in 2022 and beyond, leading to a seasonal pattern in SG&A per retail unit in Q4 and close to break-even EBITDA margin for the full year. We are extremely proud of the progress we have made as a company in 2021, navigating the unique macro environment while delivering rapid growth and managing through operational constraints. Our results relative to the industry continue to leave us more excited than ever about our long-term model and the path toward our goal of delivering more than 2 million retail units per year and becoming the largest and most profitable auto retailer. Thank you for your attention. We'll now take questions. We will now begin the question and answer session. To ask a question, you may press star then one on your touchtone phone. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing the keys. If at any time your question has been addressed and you would like to withdraw your question, please press star then two. In the interest of time, please limit yourself to one question and one follow-up. If you have additional questions, you may rejoin the question queue. At this time, we will pause momentarily to assemble our rock. Our first question will come from Sharon Zexia with William Blair. Please go ahead. Hey, good afternoon. I guess, um, can you provide some more color on the, the metering that you're talking about where you kind of took down the level of cars you were buying from customers and then the concurrent um, shift in the, the search results that consumers saw? I mean, how much of an impact was that to the quarter? Can you dimensionalize that? And then I guess it sounds like you're hoping that'll be kind of all back to normal in early 22. I just want to make sure I understood that commentary correctly. Sure. Um, so let me start with the, the constraints that, that we've been facing, um, and then we can kind of go from there. Um, I think, you know, the, the primary driver of constraints was definitely the, the very significant growth we saw in uh, the entire business, but most notably buying cars from customers in Q2, which then has, has continued um, and put additional strain on the business. I think it was accentuated by, by COVID, especially in the inspection centers. Um, and then when we found ourselves a little bit behind, it was probably a little bit harder to catch up than it might have otherwise been given the, the unique hiring environment. And so I think that that's kind of you know, what's been going on from a constraint perspective to, to maybe make that a bit clearer too. There can be um, increases in the total amount of work that are necessary inside the business that are actually greater than um, the increases in transactions that we see. And what I mean by that is if we get behind and it takes us a little bit longer to resolve you know, some, a customer question and we have to call them back, we'll see more customer calls. If, if we have um, a delivery that, that gets delayed because the logistics network is, is kind of really full on certain legs, we have to kind of reschedule that delivery and it can put additional strain on the logistics network. And so you can actually see kind of you know, total work necessary in the business grow more than just transactions. 
And so we saw that, you know, starting in Q2 and then spilling over into Q3. Um, now let me talk about the nature of constraints I think we faced throughout our life and, and maybe notably over the last 18 months and most specifically over the last uh, three or four. In general, you know, demand sort of starts at the top of the funnel. A customer shows up and um, is interested in, in buying a car, and the likelihood that customer you know, chooses to buy a car from us is a function of many things. Um, it, it includes whether or not, you know, they find the car they're looking for from us. It, it includes if they have a question and they want to call in and talk to someone, how long does it take us to answer the phone and answer their question? Um, if they're looking for, you know, get, getting that car delivered and they want to look at the delivery dates, how quickly can we deliver that car? And so when we say that we're constrained, what we generally mean is that kind of the amount of demand that we're seeing is causing those service levels uh, to be below where we historically have had them, and, and therefore uh, fewer customers would, would elect to go through the, the process with us, and therefore it crib sales to some degree. And I think that's been active, as I said, you know, throughout our life to varying degrees, and certainly over the last 18 months. Uh, the difference this quarter um, was, you know, normally that system can kind of balance itself out, and you'll see service levels kind of move out a little bit, and then that um, reduces the number of sales that you'll see, conditional on demand, and then, you know, we catch up, and, and you know, it kind of gets back into balance, or at least starts to approach balance. I think just with the speed that we saw total transactions grow, that moved more than we would have liked for it to move. So we were in a position where we kind of chose to just take those same drivers um, effectively a reduction of, of conversion, which there were several, but the most notable of which was um, choosing to, to be really surgical with what inventory was displayed in what places, and we just reduced the amount of inventory that customers could see in certain places. That ends up being a very powerful tool because we can reduce the amount of inventory that people see um, in, in certain markets if the logistics legs to that market are very constrained. We can reduce um, you know, certain classifications of vehicles that maybe have more work associated with them on average if we have certain groups that we need to alleviate pressure on. And so that was a, a very effective tool for us to use. And, and the effect from a customer perspective is just the average customer saw fewer cars um, than they would have otherwise seen, and therefore they're likely to find the car they were looking for was lower. In terms of quantifying it, wouldn't want to precisely quantify that. Um, it, it was an effect. It wasn't an overwhelming effect. I think the bigger effect is just kind of the, the degree to which we've been behind in general over a longer period of time. Um, but that certainly was an effect in the quarter, and then that's the way that we implemented that tool set uh, to put ourselves in a better position, allow ourselves to catch up uh, so that we can get back out in front of all the demand that we're seeing. That's super helpful. I guess when you think about all this complexity of buying the cars from consumers and, and the, the weird environment that you're operating in just in general, is this mainly a human a human issue at this point? Are you, are you just behind where you want to be on staffing? Or is it, a, is it a tech issue? It, it, it's, it's first order a, a person issue. Um, and and I, I think it extends you know, to inside of Carvana, uh, across all of our different operational groups, and then also outside of Carvana. Um, you know, many different groups that we deal with. When we buy cars from customers, for example, we're generally reaching out to a bank and we're dealing with a payoff and then we're asking for the title in return. Um, you know, many banks are um, understaffed in this environment relative to where they'd like to be. Those processes can take longer. So I, I think it's, um, it, it's first order of person issue inside of Carvana and outside of Carvana. And then I think that, you know, across time, as, as we kind of outlined our priorities in the past, it's you know, customer experience first, volume, GPU, and then expenses. And expenses generally means building more technology to automate more of the process. So, you know, that's also part of it. Many of these processes, you know, we can and continue to further automate uh, across time. 
but that's generally longer lead time than uh, the more immediate kind of fast-acting solution of, of getting more people. Our next question will come from Zach Fadem with Wells Fargo. Please go ahead. Hey, good afternoon. So I just want to follow up a bit on the last couple questions. Just with all the metering and, and delta variant and, and labor constraints in the quarter, do you think the gap between your demand and actual unit sales widened or compressed in the quarter? And then with your new IRC openings, is there anything you can share on timing or cadence of those IRCs as we move through 2022? Sure. So on the first, I would say we believe it widened in the quarter. Um, and I think the, the kind of um, you know, first way that we would articulate that is just you know, in this quarter, we, we took additional steps to, to meet our demand that were proactive and were just kind of natural system balancing. Um, so I, I do think it widened. Now, like, I, I also want to make sure, you know, whenever we're sitting here talking about constraints, I, I think I want to make sure and, and point out the success that we've had alleviating those constraints over time and, and the quality of work our team has done to do that. So, you know, I said this in my prior remarks, but I got to repeat it. You know, we've been constrained over the last 18 months, and yet over the previous two years in terms of total transactions, cars bought and sold to customers, we've grown by three times. And over the last three years, it's eight times. So, while we've been constrained relative to the demand that we're seeing, we've also been scaling very quickly. And I think the teams have done an exceptional job. Uh, they've been under a lot of pressure um, with the demand that we've been seeing. And I think they've just you know, continually fought very hard to catch up. Um, and so you know, we're extremely grateful to them. And, and, and I do believe they've done a great job. Uh, as it relates to the cadence of the, the inspection center rollout, we, we've only kind of provided the information that we expect to open um, eight by the end of 22, um, and so we're going to stick with that for now for uh, for the, the kind of guidance that we're giving. Got it. And then I, I can't let you off without asking about the Hertz partnership as well as the, the root partnership, but, you know, so many elements to unpack, and I just wanted to drill in on, on the sourcing side as this appears to be a way of, you know, mixing in uh, a higher you know, source of, of new vehicles on your platform without having to go to auction. So just curious, do you think this partnership and partnerships like it expands your addressable market? And then on the unit economic side, to, to what extent do you believe your, your marketplace offering could be additive to the long-term 15 to 19% gross margin? Sure. So let me start with this. I, I think um, in, in anything that we do, kind of independent of if it's partnership or if it's something that we're building ourselves, generally the, the framework that we use to evaluate it is we want to make sure that we can give a, a high-quality, differentiated customer experience. We want to make sure that we believe in the long-term economics um, of whatever we're doing, and then we want to make sure that we build it for scale, because if those first two things are true, then you're going to want to be able to scale it over time. And I think that that's the way that we you know, generally think about all these opportunities. I think, um, you know, from there, you oftentimes have this question of, you know, do you partner or do you build something yourself? Um, and I think there's a lot of considerations, you know, there. I think when you can partner, you know, partners oftentimes have assets that we might not have access to. Um, you know, you can go faster. Um, you know, there's, there's sometimes uh, questions about alignment that you have to try to resolve. Um, you have to come up with terms that are, are good for both sides. Um, so there's all kinds of questions around, you know, whether or not a partnership makes sense. I'll start with Hertz. I think as it relates to Hertz, they've got – an incredible asset, which is a high-quality flow of vehicles coming directly from manufacturer that are then utilized in their rental fleets and then um, you know, ultimately make their way into the hands of another consumer. 
So they've got a really high quality uh, asset there. And then I think, you know, that would be very hard for us to replicate on our own. And then, you know, we would like to think at least that what we've built, which is a really high quality, uh, you know, highly scalable, uh, you know, platform to sell cars to customers would be very hard for them to build. And so you know, we're, we're natural partners in that way. Uh, and so we're excited about the partnership. I think from a scalability perspective, I think, um, you know, directionally the way to think about these kinds of, of partnerships is it means that there's a, a little bit less work per transaction. Um, and I think that probably that's the most important part of what scalable means. I think you know, for something to be scalable, there has to be a lot of demand for it. And then, um, you know, the, the next question is how much kind of can you grow the amount of work that a company can do? And, and you know, then to get to units, it's a function of how much work is there per transaction. So I think, you know, that partnership reduces the total amount of work that we have to do to, to get a car to a customer. And so in that way, it's exciting. Now, it's it's extremely early. Um, and, and, you know, we, we've been testing this for a, a number of months, and then we, we signed a broader deal um, with them in the last couple of weeks. So, you know, the, this will take time for us to figure out and nail, but, but I think there's a lot of interesting potential there. Um, to try to touch on Root, I, I think, you know, we consider um, Root in the same ways. The insurance business is a very complicated business. Um, it's a business that has a lot more complication under the covers when you, you really kind of dig in than you might imagine um, from a distance. And I think that they've done a great job building a high-quality product over time, so we think that they're a really natural partner. We share a, a vision for what a solution is supposed to look like. We share a view that it takes a ton of work to build anything great. Um, and I think that's really important because that means we can both pour work into it. Uh, and so I, I think that's also an exciting opportunity for us, but it's also very early. Uh, and so as it relates to both those partnerships, we're very excited um, about their potential, but it's it's early and, you know, there's a lot of work to do to, to get those to where we would like them to be. Um, so we'll be working hard to try to get those to, to the place that we want. Our next question will come from Brian Nagel with Oppenheimer. Please go ahead. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my questions. Thanks. So the first question I have, and I know we were discussed this a bit already, but just with regard to the operational constraints, maybe just to understand better, I mean, are you starting to see some easing at all in the various aspects of that and, you know, recognizing that the environment's very fluid at this point? But if you look at it now, at what point do you think that, would you believe that these, these constraints could, could, could let up and let the business flow much more naturally? So I, that, that's hard, right? I mean, I would say um, you know, constraints show up when we don't, when we either don't accurately forecast the amount of work that, that needs to be done in the future or if we don't execute as well as we would like. That's what, that's when they show up. And I think that when we look at where we, I think that we've executed, I would like to think at least that we've executed very well through all of this. I think when we look at areas where we maybe didn't accurately forecast what was going to happen, I think this, you know, several, especially the first several uh, COVID waves, we didn't foresee, and, and that, you know, led to a decrease in efficiency and therefore constraints. I think, um, you know, heading into, you know, the early part of this year in Q2, I think, you know, we did not foresee uh, all of the growth that we would see, as I said, most specifically in buying cars from customers, and so we weren't prepared for it. I think as long as we're prepared for it, uh, you know, we, again, would like to think that, that we've demonstrated the ability to execute to very high levels of, of, of kind of growth. 
Um, and, and so I think that, you know, constraints really are about our ability to foresee what's going to happen and then our ability to, to plan for that and execute to that. And so our continual hope is that you, this, this will be the last meaningful COVID wave. You know, we'll find out if that's true or not. We don't quite know. Um, you know, the, the, the general kind of market across the board is in a bit of a unique spot right now. Uh, I'm not sure that was totally foreseen. And then, as I said, buying cars from customers came fast when we would have otherwise thought. So what I would say is, you know, we're, we're clearly investing right now across the business as aggressively as we feel like we responsibly can to try to catch up because we do think there's a lot of, of excess demand there. And so, you know, it, it's hard to predict exactly uh, how all of this will unfold, but, you know, we're going to be working hard to, to grow the capacity of the business as quickly as we responsibly can. Got it. That's helpful. And for, for my follow-up question, with regard to, you know, the efforts to buy cars directly from consumers. So, you know, you've been very successful. There's a number of other players now, both online and offline, also pushing aggressively into this aspect of the business, so to say. So, are you seeing greater competition? And does, does this, does the fact that more players are now pushing this, does it ultimately have an impact on the way the consumer reacts? So, I, I, I think that that's the smarter place to, to air, and I think that's the right thing to assume. I, I think, you know, empirically, we're, we're buying more cars from customers than ever, um, and we've seen a massive influx of demand in, in the last, you know, several quarters um, from an already very high level. So I think that, that that speaks to the quality of the offering, um, but I also think that, you know, it, it's never smart to, um, to get comfortable and to stop building. And while we believe we've got the highest quality customer offering today, we also believe we can make it a lot better in a lot of really important ways. And we've got a great team uh, that's focused on that product uh, that, that has um, all kinds of interesting plans to continually make it better. So, you know, I, I think undoubtedly it's an area that's gotten uh, more attention over the last several years. It, it probably will continue to get a lot more attention over the next several years, and, and we'll be continually building to, to make sure that we keep a spread between the quality of our offering and what else is out there. Our next question will come from Rick Nelson with Stephens. Please go ahead. Uh, uh, th thanks a lot. Good afternoon. So I'd like to, to ask you about the ASPs. You know, they've been on a you know rapid rise uh, trajectory. Do, do you have any concerns or any about uh, vehicle affordability and any you know potential pullback in demand? given where pricing is today. Sure. So I, I, I can take that one. So, you know, I, I do think um, higher used vehicle prices, you know, has an impact on demand through um, an affordability effect. You know, clearly there, you know, there's some customers that are targeting a specific monthly payment that meets their budget, and as used vehicle prices um, rise, um, you know, that, you know, there's certain customers that, you know, are less likely to be able to meet that budget. Um, and so I do think if you look um, industry-wide, I mean, we're obviously growing incredibly quickly with, you know, 74% year-over-year growth despite the constraints that Ernie talked about. But if you, if you look industry-wide, you know, various data sources have, um, you know, total industry sales down, call it on the order of 10 to 15% in Q3. Um, and so I, I do think there, there's an effect there. Um, you know, we're growing, um, um, you know, really, really quickly, uh, despite that industry-wide effect, which I think uh, is a testament to all the demand that we are seeing. Thanks for that. And as a follow-up, I'm, you know, curious about the unit growth uh, that you were seeing 
during the quarter before you pulled things in or, or metered things. And, and uh, I guess what was their final straw uh, that, that caused you to pull back uh, mid-quarter? Sure. So I, I don't think we want to jump into the, the details of intra-quarter growth. Um, what I would say that the, what drove the decision was just that we weren't catching up. Uh, and I, I think that historically we've been able to catch up faster and we just saw that big influx of demand show up. And then, um, you know, we, we, once you see that happen and once you're behind and then all of a sudden you face a situation where the amount of work per transaction can start to go up, you run the risk of allowing yourself to get further behind, even if demand stays flat, because the further behind you get, the more work per transaction there is, and, and that can cycle on itself. And so, you know, we decided to take, a, a, you know, the proactive measures to, to give ourselves a little bit of breathing room just so we could catch back up. And, and, and so, I, you know, that's what drove it. Um, and again, you know, I think we feel really good about the progress that we're making there. You know, we, we've given these stats of the growth we've made over the last several, um, you know, years. Um, but we've, you know, even in the last several weeks, you know, we, we continue to see improvement across all those major groups, whether we're looking at customer care, um, who's answering customer questions and, and handling a lot of the, the transaction. Um, we've seen our service levels get better there. If we're looking at logistics, we've seen um, that get better over the last several weeks. If, if we're looking at the inspection centers, I think they really have done um, an amazing job. I mean, it, the inspection centers... That's hard. When you get behind in inspection centers, that's a big industrial undertaking. It takes time to catch back up. And, you know, they've caught up. They built inventory in the quarter, despite the fact that we face another COVID wave, which is really tough in general, but it's extremely tough when you have an assembly line structure. So they've done a great job. Market Ops, is, which, is, which handles last mile delivery, um, has done a great job, and we've seen service levels improve there. So I do think, you know, we're seeing improvement, which is, which is good, um, but, you know, we, we remain behind and we're working hard to catch up. Our next question will come from Rajat Gupta with J.P. Morgan. Please go ahead. Uh, great. Uh, th thanks for taking the questions. Um, uh, just had a couple questions on just the GPU component. You know, on retail GPU, I guess, you know, just the quarter over quarter bridge. Um, you know, how, how should we think about the moving pieces? You know, this, this intra-quarter ben price benefit was likely lower versus the second quarter. But, you know, was there any impact of higher recon labor costs or any inefficiencies that impacted that number uh, sequentially? Um, and just like given like pricing has continued to remain so strong uh, in the fourth quarter, you know, you, you talked about like a seasonal decline um, in the fourth quarter. So just curious as to why that would be the case. Uh, and, and then just lastly, as you continue to face uh, a big ramp of IRCs um, next year and the labor environment remains challenging, uh, I mean, should, we, should we anticipate any impacts to the GPU bridge? Uh, next year, and maybe just on wage inflation, or you know, just overhead overhead expenses, you know, for, for the eating IRCs. Um, and I have a follow up on F and I. Thanks. Sure. So let me uh, let me let me take a stab at all of the questions in there. So first one, talking about um, Q3 retail GPU. So we had a, we had a strong quarter um, on retail GPU in Q3. Uh, came in at 1769. 
I think if we, you know, think back prior to COVID, we'd normally expect to see, um, you know, some seasonal decline in retail GPU. I think we saw that, you know, for the couple of years prior to COVID. Um, this year, we saw uh, a slightly similar effect, even though the, the you, you know, we're in a, obviously a very unique environment where we did see early in the quarter depreciation rates uh, pick up a little bit relative to Q2. And so that definitely had a, an effect on the sequential change in GPU going from Q2 to Q3. The other thing I'd call out is, you know, we did see higher reconditioning costs on a per-unit basis in the quarter. Um, that was driven uh, in part by, by Delta, which definitely um, impacted production efficiency, um, which then increases your per-unit costs. And so, you know, those impacts, um, we saw sort of a similar dynamic um, late in 2020. Uh, the impacts were smaller this time, uh, but they were, uh, they were there and, and, and part of that uh, sequential change. Now, you know, as we, um, as we look forward, um, you asked a couple of questions about uh, retail GPU on a, on a go-forward basis. So, you know, our assumptions for retail GPU um, in Q4 are embedded in our, our guidance, um, you know, for the full year. We typically don't break down um, individual components of that guidance, uh, but we gave you some guidance on uh, total, total GPU. Um, and then looking out uh, a bit further toward 2022, you asked about, um, you know, the, the possible, um, uh, you know, labor market effects on the reconditioning costs. And there I would say, you know, it's, it's too early to say, um, you know, I think we can wait and see uh, how that goes, you know, looking out in 2022. But in any event, um, you know, any sort of uh, labor cost adjustments are likely to be relatively small um, compared to the, you know, the overall magnitude of, uh, you know, retail GPU um, and, and overall reconditioning costs. So um, in any rate, that, that would be my thought on uh, your third question. Uh, great. Uh, sorry, sorry, lump in so many in one. But you know, just on just on finance, you know, in the third quarter, you know, or, or like the other GPU, um, you know, the, the third quarter uh, decline, you know, slight decline, quarter over quarter. Any color on that, that was more finance driven or you know service contracts? And uh, just curious, uh, you know, broader uh, picture, like how are customer delinquency assumptions looking uh, for that business? Uh, have they started to move back towards normal, albeit it could take many quarters? Um, and if yes, you know, how should we think about the trajectory going forward and then back to you know just the, the other GPU? Thanks. Sure. Yeah. So uh, other GPU, um, you know, came in again at um, I, I believe we said 2483. Um, it was down a little bit quarter over quarter. I think the, the sequential movement in other GPU is well within the normal range that we would expect, um, um, you know, uh, from quarter to quarter. Um, so it's sort of well within sort of uh, normal range of variability. Uh, in this particular case, I, I would say the biggest driver of the sequential change was um, just uh, – you know, in finance, the some uh, rate optimizations um, that led to slightly lower interest rates um, uh, that came on sort of uh, late Q2, early Q3 um, would be the largest driver of a relatively small change. And then, Rajat, if I could also maybe provide a, a little bit of uh, perspective as well. I do think a useful exercise in, in kind of the way that we oftentimes think about the business and, and, and the way that we prioritize what we're doing internally, uh, because I do think it can be very, it can be very hard to predict exactly what's going to happen by line item, by quarter. 
so we sometimes try to take a bigger view. And so an exercise that I would suggest is I think if you look at all the different public retailers and you go back in time 20 years and you, you plot on a graph their EBITDA margin, I think what you'll find is, is an extreme amount of stability. Uh, there's very, very high levels of stability across all these different retailers and very clear stories start to emerge. You can see some retailers performing a little bit better than other retailers over relatively long periods of time, which suggests your relatively better execution. You can see what happens in the financial crisis. Uh, you can see what's happening right now, where right now is a moment of interest in that 20-year graph, where you'll see that um, you know, many of the franchise uh, dealers are, are performing very well relative to history. And then you'll see that some of those that are completely reliant on auction are performing very poorly compared to history. And then those that uh, have access to buying cars from customers are generally performing you know, somewhat similarly uh, compared to history. Uh, which is somewhat interesting. But the reason I, I bring that up is because I do think that you know, even going back to the, the reason that we started to report on total GPU when we first went public in 2017, the general idea there was just that there's a lot of ballast in this industry. There's tens of thousands of other dealers that are providing you know, a fairly similar experience to customers that have very similar cost structures to one another. And as a result, you know, the industry is sort of structured in a way where the sum of the profits across those different uh, components of the transaction tend to add up to cover their expenses and their cost of capital. And once you get to that place where you kind of realize you know, these lines have been very, very stable over a 20-year period, you, there, there is little squiggles kind of that you'll see in that chart from quarter to quarter, but they're probably not the most important thing. The most important thing is just what is the quality of the customer experience that you're offering compared to everyone else? What's the quality of your variable economics, both on the revenue and the cost side? And then if those things look good, how scalable are you? And so when we think about you know, our prioritization, that's the frame that we use, um, and that's you know, how we try to make sure that, that we're putting our time and energy into the things that are most important. And I think through that frame, if you look at the last you know, year or so, uh, we would like to think at least that our performance looks very good. Um, if you compare the way that we've performed to the industry um, in any important way, we, we think that it looks very good, and we think that that's the most important thing because um, even when you're looking at, at kind of the, the bottom line, it tends to be there's a pretty stable return in general um, in buying cars from customers, and then there's some you know, variation based on the way the business model is structured, and then it's about how you perform compared to everyone else. And we think in the long run, that's what really matters the most. Our next question will come from Chris Bottiglieri with PNB Paribas XA. Please go ahead. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking the question. Um, sorry, just taking my yeah. – thanks for taking the question. Um, so it seems like you rebranded your third-party reconditioning units as marketplace units. At the same time, you're moving forward with Hertz as a large third-party seller. So if you think about your decision to brand the recognition units, is there an opportunity to use these partners in conjunction with third-party sellers like Hertz, or do you foresee them reconditioning their own units? You know, maybe talk about that more, please. So, Chris, I apologize because I don't think we've really answered one of your questions in like four or five quarters, so we definitely owe you some answers at some point. But I, I do think it's it's early in um, in the Hertz partnership. It's It's early in marketplace in general. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of room for um, for those you know, choices to continue to evolve, and so I, I think we're not going to provide additional color at this time, and, and I apologize. Well, at least you're keeping count. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> let's move on. Let's move on to SGA then. Um, is there a way to bifurcate further bifurcate SGA costs between retail and wholesale? So I'm trying to understand like how much incremental SGA you incur in, to wholesale a trade in versus retailing it. Like further, if you buy a car from a customer. 
but you don't sell one to a customer. Like, how different is the SGNA profile of that transaction versus buying and selling to a customer? Just trying to understand how trade-ins is impacting your SGNA per unit and personnel costs. Sure. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I think if you start at a high level, um, buying cars from customers um, does incur additional, um, you know, operational requirements, and then um, uh, it does incur additional costs. Um, some of those costs show up in cost of goods sold. That would be things like um, going out to the customer's um, you know, door to pick up the car and bringing it back into our, our network, um, either to, you know, to, to be um, you know, you know, reconditioned to go up on the site or what have you. So um, that's one set of costs. There's, there's another set of costs that does impact SG&A. Um, you know, I think there, uh, you know, just one example of that uh, might be customers calling in to talk about a transaction where they're selling their car to Carvana um, uh, rather than buying a car for car, uh, from Carvana. So that's an example of a, a direct effect of buying cars from customers uh, that does show up in SG&A. There's also, and, you know, Ernie sort of touched on um, – some of these concepts, but there are also some, you know, indirect costs of the very rapid growth that we experienced in, um, you know, buying cars from customers in, in the last couple of quarters, and, and that just takes the form of everything uh, just being a bit less efficient. Um, and so, you know, I think there's there's both the, those direct costs and indirect costs, um, uh, you know, that that uh, are driven by buying cars from customers. Our next question will come from John Blackledge with Cowan. Please go ahead. Hi, this is Max on for John. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, if you could talk us through the constraints on um, building and the pace of rollout for IARC build. You've already given the guidance for the end of the year, but just looking forward, you know, what are the puts and takes on being able to roll out additional IRCs and, and what's the balance there? Um, and then just, just wondering if you could talk us through a little bit, just inventory, like is there a targeted inventory level that you'd like to get through, um, typically 4Q would be a build, um, but 1Q might might be a you know not building in a typical environment. Is that is that still true for next year, or how should we think about that? Thank you. Sure. So I, I mean I think we um, you know we feel really good about our um, IRC uh, trajectory. You know we expect to open eight more uh, new IRCs. Uh, by the end of 2022, um, and then, you know, with, you know, when it comes to staffing those IRCs, um, you know, we are making continual progress. Um, you know, I think uh, many of the initiatives that we, um, you know, have have kicked off um, and, you know, have implemented um, are, you know, paying dividends, and we're, you know, we're, I think we're seeing nice progress there in terms of the second phase of scaling production capacity, which is, uh, building out the team, um, and and so I think uh, I think we feel feel good about all of that. I think the um, on the on the inventory level, I think the the simplest way to say it is you know we um, you know we do want to build the selection of cars that are available to customers on our our website. Um, you know we made some progress there in Q3, climbing it to uh, you know just over sixteen thousand immediately available units um, up from. You know, just under 13,000 in in Q2. Um, but you know, as we've talked about, uh, that you know that effect was was metered somewhat by um, you know the steps that we took to uh, to manage sales. Um, and so I think um, we want to keep um, building that immediately available inventory. Um, you know, we do think selection is a driver of conversion and a driver of sales. 
and um, you know feel you know really good about um, continuing to march up uh, that selection that we're making available to our customers, um, you know particularly as we make progress on relieving the other operational constraints throughout the system. Thank you. Our next question will come from Michael Baker with Davidson. Please go ahead. Uh, hey, thanks. Uh, two questions uh, I'll ask at the same time, I guess both related to uh, GPU. One, does uh, reducing the inventory that's available for customers to see that metering process, does that boost the GPU in any way in that uh, you can you can show cars that have better margins because they don't need as much work or, or, or whatever the case may be? Does it give a lift to GPU? And then because of that, you know, should we expect GPU to naturally decline? And then I guess related to to the GPU uh, question, uh, I think inherent in in the idea that retail units uh, will equal revenues is that ASPs flatten out. I think you've said that before, and, and of course that didn't happen this quarter. Is there any specific reason why we should expect uh, ASPs to flatten out in the fourth quarter, or is that just sort of the way you know you, you plan the business and 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 it may or may not happen, or is there anything that you're specifically seeing? Thank you. Sure. Yeah. So on the on the first question, the answer is no. Um, the you know the the cars that get metered, um, sort of the the algorithm that goes into you know deciding which cars to return in search results and which cars not to, um, is not is not related to uh, the particular GPUs on the cars. So um, the answer to that first question is a straightforward no. Um, the on the second question. Um, the you know in, in terms of ASP, so I think I think if we think about you know re revenue growth relative to retail unit growth, there's a couple of things that go into that. Um, you know, one is retail ASPs, um, and you know I, I do I do think um, you know that's a component, and and I think when you know when, when we give guidance on. Um, you know, revenue growth relative to retail unit growth. Um, that's one of the considerations that goes into it. Uh, second consideration that goes into it is uh, wholesale revenue um, will impact the ratio of total revenue to retail units. Um, and that, that's another consideration as well. Um, you know, we did, we did mention in Q3, uh, we metered both retail sales volume and uh, buying cars from customers. And then you might naturally expect uh, metering buying cars from customers to have an impact on wholesale volume and revenue. Okay, thank you. That was very helpful. Our next question will come from Nick Jones with City. Please go ahead. Great, thanks. Uh, thanks for taking the questions. Um, I, I think kind of there's a kind of large franchise competitor that's getting into other adjacencies, like trying to I guess handle some of the logistics for power sports and maybe some other large heavy equipment type logistics. Um, I guess kind of what are your thoughts on kind of the competitive reaction? I mean, do you think kind of Carvana's success has caused some of the larger, maybe more profitable incumbents to react and, and maybe get ahead of some of the direction Car Carvana may be going in the future? Thanks. Sure. Um, okay, perfect. I didn't hear the first part of your question, but I, I think I got it now. So what I would say is, I mean, I think, listen, there's um, – anytime you're lucky enough to be successful, other people are going to see that. Um, and, and so I, I think the kind of the default assumption, anytime you're you're building a business and, and you're lucky enough to be on the right path, should be to assume that others are going to notice and, and uh, you know, move in your direction. And then I think that, you know, our job as a business is to keep getting better. 
Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know really how much more color I can give you than that. I, I think you know, maybe one other thing that's, that's notable and worthwhile would just be this is hard, right? And, and I do think that um, it, it can – I don't mean to imply that, that you're making this mistake, but I think from a distance it can be easy to make the mistake that, that any given problem is easier than it actually is. And so you know, this is a very fundamentally difficult problem. Um, you know, I'll, I'll start with talking about it on the you side, but you'll be able to quickly kind of uh, adjust that for, for new product as well. But when you're you know, buying a car that, is, uh, that varies in quality, when you're um, running it through a remanufacturing process, uh, you know, where you're putting $1,000 of parts and, and labor into that car, when you're shipping that car around the country in order to give customers a really broad selection, um, when you're handling trade-ins, when you're, when you're handling warranty, when you're providing customers with financing and you're verifying the information that they send over in financing, when you're registering cars across um, 50 states and, and all the different counties that vary in, in their registration requirements, there's just so much work that goes into that, and I think that it can be easy at first to start with uh, with kind of visibility from a distance of, of maybe the buttons that get clicked on a website, and then to to believe that that's something that's relatively straightforward to to replicate. And I think you know, our view would be that you know we've worked really really hard running as fast as we possibly can with a bunch of incredible people that have been extremely motivated over a long period of time, and we still have a lot of running left to do. So, you know, we think that, that our job is to keep getting better. We think that we should expect people to, to notice the success that we're having. Um, and, and we also think that, you know, the stuff that we've built in the past that now sits behind us is a pretty big moat. And then there's a lot of stuff left that we're going to build in the future that once we climb that hill, that will turn into a, a moat as well. So I, I think we just have to keep running our plays, I think. Great. Thanks. Our next question will come from Navad Khan with Truist Securities. Please go ahead. Good afternoon. Uh, this is Robert on from Naved. Thanks for taking the question. I have one for Mark and one for Ernie. Um, so, Mark, I think in your prepared remarks, uh, you said you, you guys expect uh, operational constraints to improve in the fourth quarter. Um, is there any color you can give on how we should think about unit growth on a sequential basis? Um, and then, actually, Either can answer this question, but um, Mark, you did just touch on it on the wholesale side. Um, was going to ask if you know if you're seeing increased through, uh, throughput of vehicles into the wholesale channel um, due to some of the operational constraints. But also, are you guys seeing higher demand in the wholesale channel because there's you know demand to stockpile vehicles amid this inventory supply constraint in the market right now? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, on the um, on the first point, um, yeah, we expect to increase our operational capacity in Q4 with a with an eye toward 2022. So, you know, it's it's always a goal, um, and and you know, Q4 is always a very significant investment period for us as we, you know, work to um, to, to ramp operational capacity in, in preparation for the first half of the following year, and and that's exactly our plan uh, this year. Um, on the second question, um, you know, I think the um, so, you know, the you know whole, our wholesale volume um, has been you know very strong, um, and you know our wholesale GPUs have been strong as well. I do think 
Um, you know, that's partly due to a uh, well, well, particularly the, the GPUs um, are partly due to a, a strong wholesale market. Um, you know, there's been a lot of um, um, commentary out there, which I'm sure you're aware of as well. About um, you know that we've seen a lot of appreciation in the wholesale market this year, um, and so you know that some of the dynamics that you outlined are, are certainly playing out. Um, I think we've also made you know really great fundamental improvements in the way that we um, you know are, are able to buy cars from customers, both from an awareness perspective as well as you know um, you know from a process and technology perspective. So that's certainly driving some of our volume as well. Okay, thank you. Our next question will come from Seth Basham with Wedbush Securities. Please go ahead. Thanks a lot, and good afternoon. Uh, my question is around the metering again. Um, have you eased on the metering uh, in the fourth quarter yet? Um, we have not materially eased on the metering. Um, there's a couple. There's a couple steps that we took that we probably have pulled back on a bit, but but not materially. And again, I, I want to restate. I do think the moves that we that we made to meter sales were real and they were an impact. But the bigger impact is just the the constraints that already existed in the system before. Uh, so hopefully that's at least directionally helpful. Okay, that's helpful. And we found a lot of the metering, at least as it relates to the number of units shown to customers on the West Coast markets, to be more severe than other areas of the country. What is uh, the reason for that? Is that, that because of the lack of proximity to IRCs or something else? So I, I, I'm going to try to answer that question more generally. What I would just say is I, I do think um, as it relates to the particular move of, of um, impacting the number of cars that show up in a search result, we do have the ability to, to kind of um, provide more relief to different groups based on the cars that we choose to suppress. And so uh, if we have really busy logistics legs, um, then maybe, you know, cars that would need to traverse those logistics legs to get to a certain market, uh, they may not be displayed in that market when we're, when we're trying to, to handle a situation like this. If we have um, certain classifications of cars that require more work from certain operational groups inside of customer care, then we may be more inclined to suppress that inventory in more locations um, so that less of that type of work needs to be done if, if that particular customer care group is behind. And, and so we really can operate that, as, you know, I don't want to say perfectly surgically, but fairly surgically. Uh, and so it's been, it's a high quality tool for us to use in a situation like this. Um, and I do think it, the degree to which we use it does vary uh, by location and by classification of inventory type. Our next question will come from John Colantuni with Jeffries. Please go ahead. Thanks for the questions. Uh, I have two. Um, just wanted to start with consumer purchases. Maybe you could talk about how much of the increase in consumer purchases is just out of necessity because of a tight wholesale market versus your view that it's just simply a more profitable and inefficient channel for inventory. And related to that, once new car manufacturing gets back on track, do you envision pulling back on customer purchases, perhaps to a point where it's, it's back towards the levels that you were targeting at your investor day as a percentage of total sales? And I have a follow-up. Sure. Um, well, you're not adhering to the one plus a follow-up rule then, but, uh, but we'll do our best to answer. So I think, um, first and foremost, on buying cars from customers, I think that's – 
necessity would not be the way that I would describe it. I think the way that I would describe it is it's it's better. It's um, it allows us to provide a high quality experience to a customer that we're buying a car from, and then it gets us access to a higher quality pool of inventory that is um, on average more profitable. And so. You know, we we want to do as much of that as we possibly can. We want to build the business capacity to be able to handle um, as much of that as we possibly can. Now, I, I do think that we're in a very unique market today where acquisition channel is very, very important. Um, and normally, you know, across time, you know, if we go back to this kind of 20-year view that we talked about before, if you look at different acquisition channels, you tend to see uh, margins that are available that are fairly stable. There can be kind of um, idiosyncratic differences between the channels, but generally speaking, they're they're fairly stable. I think today, you know, the, the best source is probably uh, customer lease returns. You know, there's uh, Cox Automotive keeps uh, an index on the amount of, of uh, equity that, that lease returns have. And recently, that number's eclipsed $8,000, uh, which is an enormous number. Right? That number is, is normally closer to, to zero. So that means a customer that's returning a car and, and kind of dropping off the keys and walking away from the lease, uh, that car has $8,000 of positive equity in it. So that's an enormously advantaged channel in this environment. Uh, on the other side, you have auction, which has been um, heavily constrained in this environment. There are many dealers that are constrained in inventory, and as a result, many of the off-lease cars, for the reason that I suggested before and for the reason of dealers being constrained, aren't making it all the way to auction. There's been fewer repos because there's been um, you know, really high-quality customer uh, credit performance, so there's, there's less of that showing up in the market. Um, it, you know, the, the rental fleets have struggled to get cars. They haven't been defleeting, so there's been less of that in the market. And so that market has been very tight, and as a result, the margins that are available in the, in the auction market um, are very small. Um, and so, you know, that means that kind of the channel of buying cars from customers is even better today than normal. Um, our expectation, again, just, just given the, the kind of very strong, persistent forces that have existed over a very long period of time in this market, would be that, you know, as all these idiosyncratic, you know, strange things that are going on in the world today start to, to normalize, we'll probably see these markets move in more normal ways relative to one another, um, kind of to, to how they have in the past. I don't know that that changes a ton for us because I think today we're in the lucky position to be able to acquire many cars from customers um, and also to have access to auctions. So I, I'm not sure it changes a ton for us, but I think that um, as that happens, you know, I, I could imagine the, the best answers for us shifting to some degree and we'll, we'll react as intelligently as we can in those moments. Thank you. And, uh, one quick one. It looks like compensation expense per unit sold was up uh, 30% year on year. Uh, just talk about if that's a reflection of higher employee costs from uh, the capabilities you're, you're building around customer acquisitions um, and how we should think about the, the trajectory of compensation expenses. Thanks. Sure. So the um, the largest component of the uh, compensation expense per per retail unit, um, you know, that we saw in Q3 uh, relative to last year, it really is just you know building um, the team. 
uh, both in advance of 2022 and just making sure that we're prepared for uh, the first half of 2022 uh, and also, you know, for the long term. I think we see so many opportunities throughout the business um, and so many places where um, we believe we can, we can invest um, in the team that can, you know, help us scale the business and help us take advantage of, of some of these opportunities. So those were definitely components. I think, um, you know, buying more cars from customers was a component um, as well. As I mentioned, there's some, um, you know, compensation expenses there that show up in SG&A. Um, and then the, the last thing that I would point to is, um, you know, we were operationally constrained. Um, and so when you're, you know, you're investing for next year and you're investing for the long term, um, but you're, you know, operationally constrained in meter and meter sales as a result, um, that can also lead to um, uh, per unit impact. So those are some of the, the primary points that I would call out. Our last question will come from Edward Ruma with KeyBank Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hey guys, thanks for taking all the questions. You guys have been really clear about some of the backlogs and reconditioning. I wanted to ask a little bit though, there's been some negative press around customer service issues. How do you feel about the strength of the organization today as it relates to customer satisfaction? And do you think that that's something you have to look at metering as well? Thanks. Sure. So I think um, I think you know first and foremost, you know, delivering great customer experiences is is why we're here, and it's the most important thing that we do. Um, so it's something that's always at the absolute top of our mind in in everything we do. I think um, you know, throughout these constrained periods, we've continued to deliver customer experiences that that get rated um, you know, much higher than anything else in in, in automotive retail and. And you know, at levels on par with with some of the best customer experiences out there. Um, that said, across time, across the years, and certainly recently as well, when we are constrained, and, and you know, as to use the language I used earlier, our service levels um, get impacted. That does lead to the directional impact that you would expect uh, in customer experiences. And so, you know, we we have seen that, and that that also absolutely went into the rationale for choosing to proactively meter sales uh, while we kind of, you know, reduce pressure and caught up. Um, and we've seen that have the effect that we would like to see. We, we've, we've seen um, a, a pretty strong move back toward the levels that, that we more traditionally have been at. Uh, we've still got a little bit of room to go there, but, but we've seen a strong move. So I think throughout the customer experiences in general have, have been great. Um, but they're, they definitely, you know, are impacted by constraints when we when we have them, and, and so it's our job to alleviate those constraints and to build the business in a way that that puts no impact whatsoever on customers. Um, but but we we have had some impacts, and, and of course we can continue to get better. Thanks so much. Thank you. This concludes our question and answer session. I would like to turn the conference back over to management for any closing remarks. Perfect. Well, thank you everyone for joining the call, and, and thanks to everyone on the Carvana team. I, I always say the same thing here, and I apologize for not being more creative, but um, this was another great quarter. Uh, we faced um, you know, a, a number of challenges that we didn't foresee, and once again, uh, you rose to the challenge and, and put us in a great spot, and that's why we continue to be in the place that we're in, and that's why we keep marching toward the goals that we mutually share. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing. We wouldn't be here without you. Um, talk to everyone next quarter. Thanks. The conference is now concluded. Thank you for attending today's presentation. You may now disconnect.